0: Listening to Cooper Talk. Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper, and remember I'm only as hip as my guest. And I gotta tell you something, people. It's summertime, which in New Jersey means produce time. Now, New Jersey gets a bad rep. You know, you watch TV and Saturday Night Live, we go joysy joysy. No one talks like that. But what people don't know is how many farms New Jersey has. And so if you get to New Jersey this summer, you gotta try our peaches, our corn, our tomatoes, and our blueberries. Just listen to me, take my word for it, and try them. And I'm going to tell you, my guest today, he'll actually be in New Jersey this summer. Uh, in August, he'll be at, in Ocean City. And he'll be back in the area in September in the Philadelphia area and with his band of zombies. And the one in September, he'll be tour, a co headlining tour with Brian Wilson. And my guest is Colin Blundstone. How you doing, Colin? I I'm finally. How are you? Good, good. Now, Now, are you excited about the upcoming tour?
1: Oh, absolutely. I mean, first of all, all the, zombies, the Zombies love to play in America anyway, and we generally get to tour there two or three times a year, which is fantastic. But, it, but it's, it's, it's really special this year because we'll be touring with our hero, Brian Wilson, and we know many of his band, too, and they're just wonderful musicians I'm um, thinking particularly of Darren Sahanaja, who actually plays with us when we do our Odyssey and Oracle shows. So on this tour, Darian will be playing with us and also with Brian. So that's going to be an exciting prospect. really, really looking forward to it.
0: Now, now how did you, as my mom would say, get in cahoots with Brian for this tour? Because it is an amazing tour. You guys are both, the zombies and Brian, are both legendary. I mean, how did this come about?
1: Well, I, you know, there is a, a bit of a, a connection there. As I said, between the bands, we do know one another. But to a large extent, tours, uh, apart from the fact that we're great admirers of Brian's work, um, um, but tours uh, to a large extent come together through managers and agents and, and so forth. Musicians, to a large extent, um, uh, allow that side of the business to take care of, of booking tours. But I mean, in this case,
0: of course, we're, we're absolutely thrilled at the way this has come together. Now, you've had a very long career, both with the Zombies and Solo. When did you get interested in music? At what age were you when this whole trip started?
1: Well, you know, maybe I could answer that in uh, two separate ways. When, when I was very young, my mother's family, was, you know, she had five brothers and three sisters, but particularly the brothers, they all played instruments and it's only comparatively recently that I've realized that when I was very young I, uh, I witnessed a, a family uh, you know producing a dance band really and um, they all played two or three instruments and it was very exciting to watch them play. They also sang wonderful harmonies as well and I I've almost forgotten that so probably there was an interest in music from a very early age with me but then of course, uh, I I got my second uh, second win, so to speak, when rock and roll came along with people like uh, Elvis Presley and and Buddy Holly, uh, Little Richard, Chuck Berry, the greats of rock and roll. All Americans, incidentally, and uh, um, they really uh, just took my breath away. So sort of the late 50s, and I managed to talk my parents into buying me a guitar because I was so interested in this new rock and roll phenomenon and it wasn't easy for them to, to do that but they, they bought me a guitar and I was off and running.
0: Now were you learning by just listening to the, the radio and then playing what you heard or what was your process of learning?
1: Oh, mostly that yeah. I, I was, um, yeah I was just copying what I heard and just working things out as best I could. I did have a few lessons much much later in life uh but when i was uh you know 12 and and when I a teenager and so forth uh, i didn't have any lessons and uh, i was a pretty average guitarist really but i i managed to uh, the second school i went to from the age of 11 to 18 it was quite a strict school and we, were, we it was a boys school just boys and we had to sit in alphabetical order and i sat next to a guy called paul arnold his name beginning with a and mine with b and this is how I got into the zombies because he was a neighbor of Rod Argent who wanted to put a band together. There's no way I could have met Rod Argent if we hadn't been sitting in alphabetical order and I sat next to Paul Arnold. Rod Argent had asked Paul to join his band. It was very haphazard. Paul had never played a bass, but he was making an electric bass in woodwork, but he'd never played one. <laughs> so he was asked to come along as a bass player. And a friend, Paul, told Rod, he'd got a mate who, who played guitar a bit.
0: And that that was my introduction to the band that became The Zombies. Now, how did you become the singer?
1: It happened very early on. Um, I didn't know a lot of these guys. Uh, I only knew the the bass player. And um, we, we played an instrumental. The first thing we played was an instrumental called Malaguena. And I was playing rhythm guitar. And Rod Argent was going to be the lead singer, so he hadn't done anything when we had a break and just we were going to have a coffee. So we we went to get a coffee, and Rod sat down at an old broken-down piano, and he started playing a track. Remember, we're talking about 1961 here, and uh, it was called Nut Rocker by B. Bumble and the Stingers. And it's quite an accomplished piece. It's a, it's a rock and roll take on a classical piece. And I was just absolutely... God smacked that he could play like this. I mean, I was always a very average guitarist, but even at 15, he was an outstanding keyboard player. And I'd never met him before, but I, I just went up to him and said, look, you have to play keyboards in this band. This is fantastic. And he said, no, no, no. We want this to be a rock and roll band. We want three guitars, no keyboards. Uh, you know, that's, that's not going to happen. But then at the end of the rehearsal, I was just putting my guitar away, and I just sang it, just to myself, in a little corner, I just sang a little bit of a Ricky Nelson song, and Ward happened to hear it, I wasn't singing for him, or to impress anybody, I was just having a little sing-song, and he said, I tell you what, if you'll be the lead singer, I'll play keyboard. That was the Zombies from that day on. There was one change, but otherwise that was the Zombies.
0: So it was, it was, you know, it was happenstance that it happened. And uh, now, you, you originally, I believe, you guys were called the Mustangs
1: for a short while. I mean, that's one of the things that when you, it sounds a bit mundane, but when a band comes together, you have to have a name. You know, it's one of the things you've got to work out. And just, I literally, for a few days, we were the Mustangs. I think for a, a little bit later, we were the Sundowners. But this is before. We ever played any gigs or anything like that. And then Paul Arnold, the guy that I sat next to at school, he thought of the name The Zombies. And I'll be honest with you, I wasn't really sure what a zombie was. I'm not, I'm not sure I know what a zombie is now, actually. Right. <laughs> but um, it seemed to be a catchy catchy name, and it just stuck. And, um, and that's how we became The Zombies. There's no great deep thought in, you know, what a zombie means or anything. We just wanted a catchy a catchy name that people would be able to remember. Of course, there was no zombie culture in those days, no zombie films, uh, TV programs, magazines, nothing. It was quite obscure, really. And uh, I like to say, <laughs> in light moments, I sometimes would like to think that perhaps we started this whole
0: Zombie culture in our own innocent little way. Well, you're funny because you did. I mean, I think about it. You know, when I I'm, I was born in '63, and you know, that's zombie movies started coming out when I was older. But this when we heard zombies for the band, we thought of the, the, the zombie movies at first because it was a name that people wanted to listen. Then because we're like, oh, zombies, and it, it was marketing wise, it was brilliant. Well, it's
1: interesting, isn't it? I, I think that to be successful, if you like, in a a marketing sense, you have to be ahead of the game. It's no good calling your band a zombies when there are zombie films out. You've got to be ahead of the game. And um, I I almost thought it was a slightly challenging name. Everyone else loved it. I wasn't so sure about it. But now, I've got used to it now after 50-something years.
0: It it probably was a a, a really good name to come up with. Now, so you have the name, you guys are working. How do you get your first record deal? Are you playing a lot of gigs and then someone found you, or what happened?
1: Well, uh, you remember we were still very young. We were were all at school for the first couple of years that we were playing. Um, And then eventually we started to play in more adult venues. I remember... We were only playing locally, but they, there were quite a few rugby clubs around us, and they had a, quite a lively f- social evening, so they, they wanted rock music, and we managed to get into some of these rugby clubs and started playing for the first time to an adult audience, and we got quite a quite a good local following, and we also went on to, uh, to go into a rock and roll competition. This was in 1964, it had a slightly strange name, it was called the Hearts Beat Competition, but we came from a county which is like a small state, if you like, we were just talking about New Jersey, but I come from Hertfordshire, and um, and, and that's a county in, in England, and this was organized for the whole of the county, but all, people came from all over the country, and it was sponsored by a large newspaper, so it was quite a big deal. Um, i I think we we went into it with not particularly high hopes of doing well but we actually won it we won this competition um there were 10 bands every night and it went on for 10 weeks so there were 100 bands and uh, you know no one was more surprised than us that we won it and i think then we began to think you know maybe maybe there is you know maybe we have got something and we decided there and then, that we would become a professional band, not really knowing what that meant. We were gonna get, anyone who had a job was gonna give up. The people that were just coming straight from college or from school were gonna go straight into the band. Um, But either, this is a little, this is disputed, either as a direct result of that competition, uh, you know, part of the prize at the end of it, or an indirect way, we were introduced to Decca Records in London, and eventually, uh, a couple of months later, we made our first single for Decca Records. And I think if we hadn't have gone in for that competition, we wouldn't have got that contract. Whether it was part of the um, prize, I'm not convinced. But of course, it's a long time ago. and We all remember these things differently. But we found ourselves in Decca Studios in West Hampstead in London. And that first evening, we recorded four titles and finished. Uh, we, we, we went in at 7.00. And I think we came out at about 11. And, and we'd done four tracks. And one of them was She's Not There. And that went on, of course, to be a huge hit all around the world. And in Cashbox in America, it was actually number one. I think in Billboard, it was number two or number three or something.
0: Now, how did that song become so popular? I mean, what do you think happened that made it? People love it. Is it your voice was different, or what do you think just made it such a popular song? And it's off your first album, and that's really a, a, a accomplishment.
1: Well, I think um, I think it's got a lot to do with the song. Really, it's a timeless song. It's it's really beautifully constructed, um, and of course, it was written for the band, so it showed off everyone to their to their best. I think there's that wonderful keyboard solo in the middle and there's a great bass line and a very catchy um drum hook as well i just just think it showed off the band to its very best also we'd always featured right from the beginning in 1961 three-part harmony which which made the band sound a little bit different in 1961 there were very few keyboard-based bands and very few bands that featured harmony um, and and so we were quite different right from the beginning i'm not saying you would necessarily like us but we were different and i think that uh, that is a beautifully constructed song and i do think it sounds quite different to anything that was about at that time and if you've got a great song that's uniquely recorded you know a unique sound you stand a chance of doing something And, and we were very fortunate It it was a hit almost immediately, certainly in the UK and about three months later in the States and then all around the world. We were really lucky because we literally just decided to become professional musicians and our first record was a hit record. But I sometimes also thought that although you should accept any success you get at any time in your life, gratefully, it's really hard to get success in any business, music business is no exception. If we could have had a choice, I think it might have been better for us if that first hit had come a year later. So we could have got out on the road and learned how the music business works, at least a little bit. We were so naive. Um, it might have been to our advantage if that hit had come a little bit later. But as I said, you've, of course you've got to accept whatever success you have uh, and and be very grateful for it.
0: Now the songs of success you said three months later becomes popular in the US did the record company say okay you're going to the States to play and I mean how did it happen that you started coming over to America
1: we came over and we played the Murray the K Christmas show at the Brooklyn Fox and we opened on Christmas Day 1964 um, with some wonderful acts I think there are about. It, it was the tradition in those days that rock and roll shows had sort of 16 acts on the bill, or 20, or, you know, a lot. And they all played just one or two tunes. So there was Dionne Warwick, uh, Patti LaBelle, the Shirelles, Nashville Teens, um, the Shangri-Las, Chuck Jackson, many great artists. And and remember, we're just a local band (laughs) from back home, and we're coming to the, the land that gave us the blues and gave us rock and roll. And it was, we were incredibly excited about coming over, but it was a bit awe-inspiring to be coming to the, the home of rock and roll and playing with these great artists. But we were really fortunate. They were very supportive. There was great camaraderie because we were all away from home over Christmas. And the Murray the K show started at eight in the morning and finished about eight at night. So everyone was there all day. And um, it was a wonderful experience.
0: Now, what was it like when you started touring? Because you said you guys were all naive. What, what were you guys going through as you were touring in the beginning?
1: Well, I think that when you're really young, you kind of accept these changes in your life very naturally. But looking back, it was a bit, it was a bit of a switch to what we were used to, to suddenly be out on the road. I, I think our, our first tour in the UK was before that. We came to the States and we toured with the Searchers, the Isley Brothers, Dionne Warwick, Bobby V, and all wonderful artists. And I think because we were kids, we just we took to it quite naturally. It just it seemed like a very natural progression. When I look back, <laughs> it looks pretty scary to me. When I look back and think that we would literally just been playing little local gigs and now here we are on uh, playing with major international artists but when you're young you have no fear and you just get on with it
0: now you said you know earlier you were looking forward you know playing in america what do you like so much about playing in the united states
1: well i think the uh you know in america i think music means more than it does in many other countries and i include uh, great Britain, in that you know over here music is um, is less important i think uh, to the fabric of society than it is in America. Americans really love their music so from a from the um, from the audience point of view it's it, it 's great for us to play in front of really enthusiastic and, and a committed audience, so that side of it is great also I think that um the business side in america just you know backstage how you tour uh, the whole thing with hotels it's it's just more sophisticated than it is in many other countries when you work and these things are important if you're if you're touring for a couple of months it can get very tiring and so the more the more sophisticated the the way the the tour is uh, organised, the better. Because little things, when you're on the road, little things become big things. You know, you're mildly uh, annoyed by something before you go on tour, but four or five weeks out on a tour, and that, instead of being mildly annoyed, it's become a really big thing. So you want to have professional people around you, and we've got a very good team uh, uh, that look after us when we're on the road, and it's always a pleasure to team up with them and and get out and see the wonderful audiences in the
0: States. Now now when you're touring this year, you'll be playing the Odyssey and Oracle. Tell me about the recording of the album and uh, and and why you why you just are you gonna play the whole album in full or are you gonna mix it up? Well
1: as I understand it, the plan is that uh, you know, we have um we have a, a, a current touring band and then we have the original uh, zombies. Sadly, Paul Atkinson passed away, but the, the four of us that were, that are remaining from the original band, it's kind of two separate bands. And as I understand it, we're going to do a very short set with the, with the current touring band, and then they will help with harmonies and so forth when the original guys get together. And, and we will do Odyssey and Oracle from beginning to end. There's 12 tracks, and we will do uh, the whole album. And it came together... Again, we we don't always agree on on how things (laughs) came together all those years ago, but some of the guys, I think, felt that the band was probably coming towards an end, and they wanted to make a statement with a final album. And in particular, they wanted to produce it themselves. They didn't want an outside producer uh, in control in the studio. So Rod Argent and Chris White are, are... produced the album in um, Abbey Road Studio 3 with two wonderful engineers Peter Vince and Jeff Emmerich and both of them had just been recording the Beatles' uh, Sgt. Pepper album. We were literally about a day or two days uh, after the Beatles finished Sgt. Pepper. So it was a wonderful time. I mean, Abbey Road is a beautiful studio anyway, but it was a great time to be there because it was a really the cutting edge of the recording industry was Abbey Road in, I think we were there in the summer of 67. Um, all around us were percussion instruments, and in, in particular, the, John Lennon's Mellotron was in, the, in Studio 3, and Rod honed in on that Mellotron, and if you ever listen to Odyssey and Oracle, it, there's Mellotron all over it and it just happened that John Lennon had left his Mellotron behind, otherwise the, the sound of the album probably would have been totally different. But it, we were huge Beatles fans and it was a real thrill for us to be there just after they'd left and we were picking up um, maracas and tambourines and so forth off the floor where they had left them. So it was incredibly exciting and yeah, just a really great time to be in Abbey Road. We We had a very small budget, we had a thousand pounds and even then that wasn't very much money and Abbey Road was one of the most expensive well it was the most expensive studio in England anyway and what we did to get around that was we really comprehensively rehearsed before we went into the studio so that we knew the songs we were going to do we had the arrangements we knew what key we were going to play in uh, we knew the solos we just were looking for a performance that, you know that the basics of what we were going to do was set before we went into the studio. And that way, we, we could record really fast. And we, we had to record fast because we had such a limited budget.
0: Now, the album comes out, and I believe Odyssey, uh, an art student or an album cover person, did something and spelled it wrong?
1: He did. Um, the artist is called Terry Quirk, and he shared a flat with Rod Argent and Chris White, with two members of the Zombies. And he came up with this great painting uh, and uh, showed it to them. And they said, yeah, great, you know, finish it, it's fantastic. <laughs> and they went off on tour. And when they came back, they saw the finished thing and knew immediately that there was a spelling mistake. But when they contacted the record label, it had already gone to the printers <laughs> and it was too late. And, and it, it, it's quite amusing that Rod had the idea of making up a cover story about... It's a a bit weak, actually, but it's it's a play on words, on Ode, because uh, uh, the spelling of Odyssey is wrong. And he told everyone this story, including me. This is what makes me laugh. He told me this story. It was done on purpose. And it was only in a radio interview three or four years ago. This is over 50 years after the album was released. He admitted it on the radio, that it was a mistake, and they just tried to cover it up. And this is on live radio. I said to Rod, I can't believe you've told me that story for 50 years, that it was done on purpose, with some rather strange story to cover up the fact that Terry Quirk couldn't spell. Um, so yeah, there's a spelling mistake on the album. I think it's it's in, in a way it's helped it's added to the mystique of the album but at the time it was a bit of a disaster
0: to be yeah. honest and you're lucky now because most kids can't spell so if someone's trying to find your music they're not even going to notice that odyssey's spelled wrong
1: well perhaps that is lucky yeah but um, i think people are intrigued by that really there's not many albums that go out with a wrong spelling on it and and in the way it's <laughs> It sort of sums up what was happening with the Zombies at the time. We were, we were banging our head against a brick wall, and it seemed we perceived ourselves as being not very successful by that time. And of course there was no internet then, so we didn't, we, we didn't really know what was going on in other countries around the world. Only later did we find out that in the three years we toured as a professional band, from 64 to 67, We always had a hit record somewhere, but we found out much later, probably up to two years later, that that was the case. But we were watching the UK charts and the American charts mostly, and our singles were getting lower and lower in the charts, and it seemed to us that it was probably time to move on and try new projects. Knowing what I know now, I I sort of question that decision, you know, maybe it would have been better if we'd have um, stuck together and at least gone out and and supported and uh uh the album you know we we never played any of those tunes um so we didn't promote the album in any way i think there was one single released in the uk it didn't chart and everybody thought okay it's time to move on so we actually broke up before the album was even released
0: now that must be hard because I mean you guys are still young, but you started at a young age. I mean, was it a a group decision or was some of you more for staying? Or how what how did the band take that decision? Well, I, I think there was a general feeling
1: that um, the band had run its course, but I think some guys were more keen on moving on than others. But uh, it it was rather difficult because we were handled very, very badly um, from a management point of view. And most of the guys had never earned any money. It's been, in particular, it's the non-writers. The writing re- re- revenue came from a completely different income stream. Our publishers were great. And so the two guys who did most of the writing, Will Arthur and Chris White, they were in a totally different position to the three guys who were non-writers. We've literally never earned any money on the road. It's not a new story. I mean, just about every band in the 60s suffered from the same problem, situation, or whatever, I guess because you're very young and you don't know how the business works. And there's some ruthless people out there. And so we were very vulnerable in that. But most of us were just flat broke.
0: Now, so you break up. Now, what is your course of action and what do you decide to do? I
1: I think that I was the only one who let, we had a meeting in a, in Rod and Chris's flat and decided the band was going to finish. And i thought about this a lot. As we left that building, I think I was the only one who had absolutely no idea what I was going to do. Rod and Chris wanted to start a new band. I think they uh, they got Hugh uh, Hugh Grundy our drummer involved in that band. And Paul Atkinson had just got married and he was under pressure to to have an income, and he'd been offered a job, he's very bright Paul Atkinson, and uh, He had been offered a job in a computer firm, and so he was gonna go off and, and work in computers, although later on he came back to the record industry and was a very successful record executive. But I had no idea, I had no idea what I was gonna do. And uh, I eventually, I just phoned up an employment agent, I know this sounds weird, I phoned up an employment agency I just said, have you got any jobs? And they found me an office job and I just went and worked at an office job for the best part of a year I worked there. And then during that time, Time of the Season had been released in America and it had become a huge hit. And so once again, there was interest in the in the members of the Zombies, although there was no band. And I was offered a recording deal to come back into the business. I, I was quite... I wasn't sure I wanted to do it because I was so disappointed when the band finished. I wasn't really sure I wanted to get back into the music business, but um, I started making records again, and and one of them was a small hit, a top-30 single in the U.K., and the decision was made for me. Um, There was a hit single, and I was off and running again.
0: Now, what is it like when you go off on your own? I mean, even though the, the Zombies were together for just a short time, you know, now you're on your own. Did you miss those guys? I mean, when you started playing with new backing music, did, it, did you feel comfortable or did you miss the other Zombies?
1: Um, well, I should say first of all that Rod Argent and Chris White produced my first two albums, solo albums, and Chris White on his own produced my third album. Rod produced my sixth album. So I was still seeing a lot of them. Uh, particularly in the studio and i was recording a lot of their songs as well um yeah i did miss them on the road it's there are many subtle differences in being a solo artist rather than being a, the mem- a member of a band uh you know there are, there are a lot of responsibilities that fall squarely on your shoulders and it does feel different in many different ways when you're a solo artist and i think it took me a long time to get used to that but obviously i've been making solo albums now since about 1971 so um to a large extent i've got used to it although in recent years my solo career has taken a backseat to the reformed zombies but i still make solo albums and i still tour with a solo band not not the same guys as
0: back in the 70s but uh, i do still tour as a solo artist you have made a lot of solo albums, which is awesome. Now, you also made some as the name Neil MacArthur. What, what, what was that?
1: I did. Well, that was when, uh, I, you know, I was just describing, when I worked uh, literally in an office, nine to five, and people started getting interested in me and the other guys in the band because of time of the season. And a producer called Mike Hurst started calling me to see if I would record again. Um, Mike had just produced the early Cat Stevens records. Uh, I don't know if they were hits in America, but they were big hits in the UK. So it would be Matthew and Son, uh, I Love My Dog, uh, Gonna Get Me A Gun, they were huge hits in the UK. And he was very keen for me to record again. As I said, I was quite reluctant because of the sadness of the zombies breaking up. Um, But he taught me into going into Olympic Studios in London. In the evenings after I'd finished my day job, it, it's a bit of a strange setup. And I, would, I just sang some tunes with him, and he had the idea of me using another name. I honestly don't know uh, the reason behind that, but I wasn't sure I was coming back into the music business anyway. For me, this is just a bit of fun in the evenings. So I, Neil MacArthur, fine. And then he came up with another slightly strange idea of re recording She's Not There. And again, you know, I didn't put a lot of thought into it. It was, this for me was just putting my toe in the water to see if I wanted to be in the music business again. So She's Not There by Neil MacArthur was issued as a single, and it was a top 30 hit in this country. Uh, I think it charted in some places in Europe as well, but it it didn't in America. Um, And I remained Neil MacArthur for about 12 months, and then I was... I was in Chris White's car coming home from a party and he said, listen, why don't you forget about this Neil MacArthur business? Come and record with Rod and I and go back to your real name, Colin Lundgren, and and that's what I did. And we made our first record together with me as a solo artist. It was called One Year, and there was a big hit single on that. It was a Denny Lane song called Say You Don't Mind. It's very, very unusual. It's just uh, a very... Um, individual uh, string arrangement by a wonderful arranger called Chris Gunning. Uh, there's no rhythm section on it, it's just a string orchestra, like 21-piece orchestra. And, uh, as I said, it's a great song written by Denny Lane and it it got to about 13 or 12, I think, in, in the charts here. And uh, again, I was back in the music business. It's, so much of it happens by chance, you know?
0: Really? Um were you enjoying it as much as you did when you were a young, when you were younger, this solo career when you said you were back in the business? Were you enjoying it um, again? Uh, yeah, I think I was really. I mean, especially when things are going well,
1: it's uh, you know if you're having hit records and you're playing to enthusiastic audiences, um, you should really be enjoying it. I think. Um, yeah, I, th- I think it was. I was still only about twenty-three. And um, I set off, you know, I did about three or four years on the road as a solo artist at that time. And uh, I think we had a, had a pretty good time. We came to the States, and we toured extensively in the UK and Europe. They, they were great players, and um, we had a wonderful time.
0: Now, during your solo career, you moved to the States for a while, right? I
1: did. Uh, eventually, I joined the rocket label which was owned by elton john and um, bernie Torpin, uh, Gus Gus who who is his producer and john reed who was then was his manager and for my second album actually elton suggested to me that i should go to california and record and it was quite a sort of a a casual comment over lunch and i did it you know i went to california i didn't know anyone and uh I met some wonderful players. Uh, Davy Johnson from Elton's band put a band together for me which was largely Toto Uh, and uh, it it was a great experience to play over there and um, I recorded my second album for Rocket Records. Now,
0: the Zombies, you reunited in 1990 I believe. How did that come about? Um, we, what year did you say then? 1990.
1: Oh, in 1990. I'm not sure that that was really reuniting the zombies. It was mostly, I've always thought of it, it was a, there was an album, and I've always thought of it as Chris White's project. Um. There was, there have been quite a few bands impersonating the zombies over the years, particularly in the 60s. But around 1990, there was a band in America. They were English, and they were pretending to be the zombies, and they weren't very good. And Chris was concerned that we didn't have uh, enough control over the name as we weren't an active band. His advice from his lawyer was that, uh, you know, we, we We couldn't really stop these people while we weren't actively being the zombies so that was the driving force in recording some tracks that that grew into an album now rod never really committed to that project and i think that any zombies project that rod's not involved in is 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 suffering from a um it's going to be suffering from difficulties because so much of uh, zombie records and writing, you know, comes from him. But I guess it kind of, it helped to stop that band playing. From what I can gather, I mean, I I don't recommend people doing this, but I thought that our efforts had discouraged that band because they disappeared. But I was told later on that, you know, they were very poor. And a, a fan went into the dressing room and accused them of being impersonators and I'm afraid backed up their accusation with a loaded gun and especially being English they probably had never seen a gun before and I'm afraid that was the end of them was, you know I'm glad to say the gun wasn't fired but probably frightened them to death as it would me um, and so I thought that our efforts had discouraged them but actually I think we have a lone fan to thank for right. um, for sorting that band out. Not that I recommend that kind of action, but in this instance it worked and nobody got hurt.
0: Now around 2000, you and Rod started uh, recording together. How did that reunion happen?
1: Again we remember it differently but I had a solo band this is this is how I remember it I had a solo band and I had a wonderful keyboard player in that band but he was a bit unreliable if anyone asked him to play a concert where he they wanted him to play his own songs he would just disappear I wouldn't I'd lose him and I it meant I was always turning up for gigs without a keyboard player and I I just took a chance. I mean, I hadn't played on the road with Rod in many many years, but I just took a chance. I didn't think he'd do it, but I had six more dates to go on this tour and I said, "Rod, I've got six dates. Would you consider coming up and and doing them?" And he said, "Yeah, okay, I'll do those six dates, but but no more." But then when he came up and played, he enjoyed it so much that those six dates have grown into 20 years and uh, So that's kind of how it came about. There was no uh, initial thought of reforming the band exactly the opposite. We weren't builders of zombies. We didn't play many zombie tunes. But as we, as time went by, we were really, really pleasantly surprised that there was so much interest in the zombies repertoire. And we were encouraged by promoters, by the audiences to play more and more zombie tunes until we got to a point where really we were playing a Zombies show. And at that point, we talked to the other original members, Chris White and Hugh Grundy, and said, look, this seems a little crazy. We're playing a Zombies show. Um, Maybe we should use the name again. And they gave us their blessing. And it was probably six or seven years after we got back together again that we played
0: our first show as the Zombies. So you played as the Zombies, and now you're recording. Now, how did you end up getting the other guys involved in the band to come back?
1: Well, uh, I think it was in 2008. It was the 40th anniversary of the release of Odyssey and Oracle. And there was a lot of interest in us doing a show um, to play Odyssey and Oracle in its entirety. And obviously, we wanted to include the other guys. And... um, We talked to them about it. We were going to play one show at Shepherds Bush Empire that immediately grew to three shows, and there was huge interest uh, in this country. But one interesting thing was Hugh Grundy, our drummer, and Chris White, our bass player, hadn't really played professionally since 1967. So they hadn't played for, uh, you know, 40 years. or I, I don't know, 30 years. And so I said to Rod, listen, we should all get together and just go through Odyssey and Oracle. Let's just see if we can play it, you know? But mostly I was wondering i was wondering whether they could play it because they hadn't played professionally. So we got together uh, in Rod's studio and Hugh Grundy and Chris White were absolutely note perfect. They'd practiced, they'd rehearsed, they knew everything. And Rod and I, who'd been out touring the whole time, we hadn't practised, we hadn't rehearsed, and we were terrible. <laughs> so the two people that I was concerned about were absolutely no perfect. And us two hard and pros were dreadful. Um, I, you know, if you'd have been listening to this rehearsal, you would have thought that they were the hard and pros and we were the people who haven't played for 30 or 40 years. But it, it, was, it was very amusing that obviously uh, Rod and I then had to... Uh, had to get our skates on and start uh, start rehearsing and make sure we knew the album intimately by the time we first played in 2008 we played three shows at the shepherd's bush empire and then the next year i think we played four or five shows around the country doing odyssey and oracle and eventually we uh, we came over to america i, I think it might have been last year and we played Odyssey and Oracle over there. So It's not something we're going to keep doing. I I think that this tour with Brian Wilson will probably be uh, the last time that we'll play Odyssey and Oracle in its entirety. Unless we're all able to tour uh, on the 60th anniversary, but that's some way off at the moment. (laughs) So we we don't want to spoil it. We want to make it special. So we won't be doing it too frequently in the
0: future. Now, you've also recorded music with Rod. How did that come about? I know you. it was the Zombies featuring you and Rod. What was the whole process when you started recording again?
1: Um, well, in the first place, as I said, we, we did six concerts together. We both enjoyed it very much. And Rod was already recording an album. And we got together on that project and literally to start with i put my voice on some tracks that he'd already started recording uh, there wasn't enough material to make it an album and um we had to record some new material and that became our first album back together again but we did we kind of um the billing was it got quite elaborate it would be something like colin blunton and rod argent of the zombies or something like that. It was never The Zombies. And uh, I think we recorded two or three albums before we ever used the name The Zombies. But it was great to be back in the studio with Rod again. We've always worked very well together. Rob will often say that he learned to write songs for my voice. And whenever he writes a song, he is subconsciously writing for my voice. And I learned to be a professional vocalist singing his songs. And so it's, you know, it's a match made in heaven. We work very well together in the studio and on the road. I've, I've just been with him today. I'll be going every day to his studio this week. I've just spent all of today, until we had this phone call, going over three new songs with Rod. And we just go over them over and over again until we're sure that uh, we, we're, we've got what we want. Between the keyboards and the, and the lead voice and then we'll bring the other guys in at the end of the week and we're hoping to have a two days recording on friday and saturday so in many ways you know we're doing exactly the same as we used to do way back in the 60s when we would rehearse at, at rod's parents house when we first got together and we would go over songs over and over again till we got them right we're still doing the same thing
0: now in '88, you guys were nom. I believe that's the first year you were nominated for. I mean, you were eligible to join the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Then you got nominated in 2013 when you got your first nomination. Did you guys see that coming, or what? What went through your mind when you're all of a sudden heard? You know, it's years later, and they're saying you're nominated. Well, it was a
1: huge and and wonderful surprise. I didn't see it coming at all. Uh, I was absolutely thrilled, um, I, I can't tell you, I mean, it's such a wonderful recognition that your fellow uh, professionals feel you're worthy to be nominated, you know, let alone being inducted, um, it, it was a, it's such a great honour, it was a wonderful surprise, and in fact, I think we were nominated for four years out of five, and, and then eventually this year, we were inducted. I, ca- I cannot tell you how exciting that was. Absolutely brilliant. Just the whole idea of it's exciting, but the the actual evening of the induction at the Barclays Center in Brooklyn was absolutely magical. Seventeen thousand people, a wonderfully organised show with great artists, and it was such an honour to be part of it. Now. Do- inducted us his animals from the bangles inducted us and she gave such a wonderful speech she's so eloquent and um it, it just was a perfect evening
0: now do you choose who inducts you or how does that work
1: um i you know i didn't have too much to do with that i think the rock hall makes suggestions and uh yeah, I mean, I can't imagine it would be someone you didn't want it to be, but we were thrilled it was Susanna Hoff because she's been to many of our concerts and she's actually sang with the band. Um, so we were absolutely thrilled that, that she was, you know, willing and able to come all the way from Los Angeles to New York to induct us into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. It was, uh, it, it, it was just wonderful.
0: Now, the times that you that you were nominated and didn't make it, do you get a little let down when that doesn't happen, or were you just, as you said, it was such an honor to be uh, nominated, but do you, do you sit there in the beginning where you're going, you know what, I, I really want to make it?
1: Well, it does start to feel that, you know, if you've been nominated uh, three times before we were inducted, um, you do start to feel it's not going to happen, I suppose. You get that little voice saying, this is ne- this is never going to happen, but... How I got over it was, it just in a very light-hearted way. I would say to myself, if you if you don't get inducted, I would be saying to myself, look, this is just a bit of fun. It's it's just if I don't get upset, this is it's fine. It's fantastic you've been nominated, and and you know keeping it very very light. When we got inducted, of course, it all changes, and I find it sort of a career-defining moment, a life-defining moment that validates everything we've done, that our, first of all, in a public vote, we got something like 320,000 votes, unbelievable number for us to get, and then uh, that our fellow professionals should induct us, It, it gets very serious, and you start to think, this this validates my whole career, or our whole career, you know. so I see it in two completely different ways. If we don't get inducted, just a bit of fun. When we do get inducted, it's very, very serious.
0: Now, how do they tell you you've been inducted? Where were you? Did you get a phone call? Or how does that work? Uh, I was at home, and I got
1: a phone call from our managers. In, uh, we're managed by the Rocks management in New York, and they phoned us, and uh, believe me, there was great excitement in the blumstone household uh, when we were told it was um you know it was a simple phone call just sort of sit down i've got something very exciting to tell you and uh, there was a lot of
0: you know yipping and hurraying and all that sort of thing so you're going to be you're starting your tour well you're playing a, f- a festival in the uk in july but then you're starting your tour in August, just the zombies by themselves. What can yeah. p- people expect to see? What 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 are they going to see when they come? But when they see us by ourselves, yes, that, that will be the, the you
1: know the the modern touring band, and uh, we'll play uh, the big hits. Um, so we'll, you know, she's not there at the time of the season, tell her no. We'll play a, a selection from Odyssey and Oracle. We'll probably play a couple of Argent tunes from Rod's band but after he left the Zombies. We may play an Alan Parsons track because I've recorded with Alan Parsons a lot. And hopefully we'll play some new tunes as well, a selection, maybe just even a couple of the new songs that we're working on at the moment. So I like to think there'll be something there for everybody. There'll be the, the big standard hits, a, a selection of other songs from the 60s, and then some modern tunes played by this wonderful band that we've got at the moment. They're great musicians, really wonderful musicians. And um, I like to think that, you know, we put on a pretty good show.
0: And then you start with uh, Brian, and yep, and that's going to be you know, that's a lot of your. It's a lot of shows. I mean, how how do you keep your voice held up? I mean, you know, I see in some things you're playing three, four, five nights in a row. How do you keep your voice in in sync? Because as we get older, our voices change. But how do you keep oh, your they voice? Do. They do.
1: I, I was very lucky that I, I started just for a short time, about. In, uh, not when I was young, but when I, about 10 or 15 years ago. I studied with a very good singing coach. And he just taught me a little bit about singing technique. And he also introduced me to a series of singing exercises that when we're on the road, I do these exercises twice a day. And I find that that strengthens my voice. And, and it also it makes sure that my, I've warmed my voice up before we go on stage. I will have sung for an hour before uh, we we play the first tune of a concert, I've, I've sung for quite a long time, and I find that really helps. Um, but you, you know, you are you're right. You're still subject to wear and tear, and if we, we don't like to play more than five nights on on a, on the trot, you know, we'll nearly always have a day off after five nights. But as I get older, I'm kind of <laughs> I'm hoping that we get. There's more three and four nights before I get a rest, because it, it is quite demanding. Uh, and then the other thing is you just have to try and stay healthy. And keep away from people who colds. cold. That's one of my big bugbears. And people come backstage and they start sneezing and coughing. It's, uh, uh, you know, you've got to be so careful. And then just eat sensibly, get plenty of sleep. Just common sense things,
0: really. Now after the tour's over It ends September 29th What are the plans For the Zombies Are you guys Going to record again What's going through The band's mind
1: Oh I think We'll be recording In the later part Of the year Uh, We're hoping to get A couple of tracks Done this weekend At least started Anyway Um, And I think Yeah at the end Of the year I would hope We would get A few tracks Recorded So that would mean um, We could possibly Have an album ready Although it's so difficult to tell when albums are going to be actually available to retail, but I, I would hope it would be ready for next autumn um, because, obviously, we're touring at the same time as we're recording. It's not always easy to get these sessions um, in the book, but uh, I think the second part of the
0: year will be dominated by writing and recording. Well, that's awesome. You know, Colin, I want to thank you for taking your time today. And People, uh, you can go to... Uh, the website is thezombiesmusic.com and colin has his own website it's colinblunstone.net and so please check them out go see them this summer go to their website it says all the tour dates go out see a great show and if you see them them personally by themselves is a great show but if you see them with brian wilson that's a that's a spectacular show too so people check out colin go buy some uh zombies music it's all good stuff and uh also go to my website coopertalk.net you can find over 730 episodes there email me cooper at coopertalk.net and follow me on twitter at coopertalk remember i'm steve cooper i'm only as hip as my guest and don't forget drink your water eat your vegetables and take your vitamins and i'll talk to you next time thank you